Um, on to our final speaker of the morning. It's an absolute delight for me to introduce Dr. Richard Jones, who is cardiologist at uh, Portsmouth Hospitals. And um, Dr. Jones may or may not remember that I was his SHO many, many years ago. And it was actually my final hospital job before I moved to the VTS to become a GP. And I will never forget Dr. Jones's kindness in writing me a lovely letter, wishing me all the best in my GP career. So here I am, still a GP, Richard, but still very, very fondly remember your wonderful teaching and uh, leadership when I was in your team at the QA. So Dr. Jones is joining us this afternoon now, isn't it, to talk about human factors in healthcare, avoiding mistakes in medicine. Fascinating. And I know mistakes, if you're anything like I am, something that we always fear and worry about, uh, but are nonetheless inevitable to some degree. So I would love to hand over to Dr. Jones. Without further ado, please do talk to us. Hi, thank you very much. Can you hear me, Stephanie? Can you put yeah. your thumb up? Great. And thank you very much for that very generous um, introduction. That's probably the nicest introduction I've ever had. So thank you so much. And um, uh, you don't look a day older, by the way. So there we are. Um, but th thank you. Um, so now for something completely different, although actually um, I just picked up at the end of the last talk um, on the psychological uh, aspects, and this is really probably a talk about psychology more than anything else, but it's something, as you say, that plays on our minds. Uh, so I am based in Portsmouth, so I apologise that there's going to be a heavy maritime presence in this talk. Um, that's because I think that we um, tend to remember things better with um, other examples from other uh, areas. Um, so I'm going to talk about the uh, human factors in healthcare. Um, so if I could have the next slide, thanks, Joe. Uh, so some of us may be old enough to remember Tenerife 1977. This is the world's biggest ever uh, aeroplane disaster. And it was uh, a, a huge tragedy. It was a massive wake up call to the airline industry, uh, as you can see the number of deaths. And it was entirely due to human beings and human behavior, nothing to do with the aircraft. So that uh, acted as, as kind of uh, a spur to get really, really serious about the effect of human behavior on creating accidents. And for the last 40 years or so, the aviation industry, next slide please, um, has done really well at uh, studying how humans interact in the workplace and why we make mistakes. It's all bottled. Um, in this tomes of this nature. Um, we don't need to believe that we are aeroplanes or pilots, but the lessons are there because this is about human behaviour, not about aeroplanes. Next, please. So um, often when we talk about human factors, the way in which we interact uh, with the workplace, um, we have these aviation examples and it can turn people off. Um, and the reason is that in aviation, broadly speaking, you will have to do the same thing over and over and over and over again. The chances of an accident killing you in an aeroplane are one in 14 million. If you compare that to the risk of, of a medical error, 
there's a orders and orders of magnitude difference. Um, sadly, the chance of anything uh, going wrong when you come into hospital is one in 10. And the chance of that event actually taking your life is one in a thousand or one in 2000, depending on how you measure it. I don't think we have comparable data for primary care. Maybe somebody knows about comparable data. But the point is, and I think we're all aware, we are human and we make mistakes and we have nowhere near the level of reliability in, what, in how we deliver healthcare as compared to aviation. So they've been on the journey. What can we learn from them? Um, next, please. <clears throat> so uh, the Clinical Human Factors Group um, have defined uh, healthcare, uh, the understanding, uh, uh, human factors, the understanding of what affects our behavior and our performance, our behavior and our performance um, in the workplace. This was actually a group founded by a pilot who sadly lost his wife during a routine operation um, and put, has put his energy into trying to, he was shocked at how little healthcare doctors in particular knew about human factors. Couldn't believe it because pilots live and breathe this stuff. Um, it is absolutely core to their understanding of safety. And when, when his, um, sadly his wife died, no one, had, many people hadn't even heard of human factors. Next, please. <clears throat> so human rather than technical failures now represent the greatest threat to complex and potentially hazardous systems. And that's all systems, but it includes healthcare systems. And I think we've been fairly slow at embracing the concept that we are a, a high risk, high reliability organization. Next, please. So managing human risks will never be 100% effective. We are always going to fail, but we can moderate our fallibility. We can't eliminate it, but we can moderate it. And I hope I'm just going to illustrate some of the uh, human factors that might affect our behavior in this talk. Next, please. So what are human factors? Here are um, uh, some examples. So we've got uh, seniority gradient, we'll talk about that, time pressure, familiar to us all, distraction, fatigue, culture, tunnel vision, system design, confirmation bias, situational awareness, and communication. Now you'll all have heard of these, but probably not thought very much about how they, they come into your everyday uh, life. And so we're going to talk about some of these now. Next, please. Um, another important principle when it comes to error, and I'm sure you will have all heard of James, Professor James Reason's Swiss cheese model of how things can go wrong. So if you consider these slices of cheese all rotating, the chances are that um, the, the holes at some stage will all line up. And so in healthcare, as in many other industries, we have multiple layers of defense to try to prevent us making a mistake. Occasionally, all those holes will line up and our defenses will be penetrated. So that's something to keep in the back of your mind when you're thinking about how you design systems in, in primary care to not allow those holes to line up. And as we'll see in some of the examples we're going to talk about, um, it, it was really the, all the holes lining up rather than one problem. Uh, next, please. So um, I think in my world, 
this is probably the biggest source of um, uh, of mistakes, um, and that's distraction. Now, maybe that is because of the hospital environment, and that could be very different in the general in the world of general practice. I don't know how you're set up, but you need to be aware that as soon as you become distracted, there is a chance that you're going to make an error. So, for example, um, in my world, the ward round seems to become open season for distraction. Everybody and everybody seems to be able to come up and interrupt the ward round and say, oh, can you do this? Or, oh, can you do that? And um, certainly as I've got older, I found it more and more difficult to maintain my level of concentration. Uh, and after a distraction, you can drop the ball, lose important line of thought. Um, and concentration. The same might happen if you're sat uh, having a consultation and someone interrupts you or you're or just probably trying to dictate or, or write a clinical note or look up some results. We forget things when we become distracted. So I, ca I can't emphasize enough how important it is to try to reduce the potential for distraction. You can never eliminate it. On the ward round we give out, I give out, little slips of paper saying that in the 21st century, human error is the biggest source of uh, danger to our patients. Please do not interrupt the ward round unless your question is life-threatening. And you only have to do that a few times until you change the tone of, uh, of interaction. So people now understand, uh, without me having to be in any way rude um, to people, that actually, please don't distract unless it is life-threatening. So something to think about in how you set up your life in, in primary care. How open are you to distraction? Is there a way in which you can signal that where you don't want to be distracted? One of my colleagues, um, Peter Brennan, who I do a lot of human factors teaching with, um, was getting very, very irritated in the operating theatre because um, people, when he was trying to do really intricate surgery, people would be chatting away about their Tesco shop in the background. And then he would sort of snap at them and then they would get a bit upset with him and that would make him unhappy. And so the cycle of decline continues and your performance then falls off. In aviation, they have a term called sterile cockpit, which means below 10,000 feet, um, you're not allowed to talk about anything in the cockpit apart from landing the aeroplane. So absolutely no distraction other than no chatter other than landing the aeroplane. And Peter's introduced that in the operating theatre. So a lot of the operations routine and people can chatter away and have music playing. But when it comes to a critical uh, part, there is a, now a code for I need to concentrate that doesn't wind people up or cause offence. I don't know what the, you know, what, what, how that might interact with your lives in primary care, but uh, it's worth thinking about. Next slide, please. So how distracted are you? This is just from the American uh, 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 Automobile Association. So when you're driving along listening to the radio, low level of distraction, um, trying to tune the radio, your distraction goes up. Texting, as we know, very dangerous. Actually, interestingly, the highest level of distraction when you're driving is trying to operate the satellite navigation system, as no doubt uh, we're all aware. So. Um, be careful, be careful. That's just when you're driving a car. Think about when you're doing something in the medical environment. Next, please. 
So uh, I mentioned we'd have some um, maritime examples. When you reach the pinnacle of your career as a captain of a warship, this is not how you'd like to see your warship on the back of a low loader in Sydney Harbour. Um, and the reason for that, next slide please, was this. And uh, this poor HMS Nottingham um, came off the worst for collision with Wolf Rock um, off, the, off Lord Howe Island in Australia. Um, and the reason this happened was, next please, distraction, you guessed it. So landing the helicopter is one of the most um, challenging things to do on a ship when it's moving up and down at sea and the wind is getting up, and more so when the captain's in the helicopter. And so the, the whole bridge had become distracted by the idea of trying to get this helicopter landed safely. The weather conditions had changed um, and the plan of navigation that had been laid out before the captain left had changed. And sadly, you know, we talked about the Swiss cheese. The uh, chart, they were about to set sail across the Pacific and the chart of the bay they were in had been changed to a chart of the Pacific. And so the scale was very different. So the rather large rock just below the surface was now a little tiny cross. And then by chance, the navigator's pencil had also drawn their course straight through the rock. And so pencil obscured it and he hadn't noticed it. He was a junior navigator. So all these things are uh, combining to cause um, distraction, which you wouldn't think was possible on something as sophisticated as a warship, but it happens. Could it happen to us? Next, please. So another maritime example, um, I, I was at medical school when this uh, happened, but I remember waking up to the radio uh, of this tragedy that happened off um, Zeebrugge. Um, the Herald of Free Enterprise had capsized and 193 people had died. Now, on the surface of it, this was pretty straightforward. Um, the ship, the ferry had sailed uh, with the bow doors open. Um, and as soon as it started to hit waves, water had come in, uh, swash, sloshed from side to side, um, and the boat capsized in, in fairly quickly. Um, so that was pretty much the reason why this had happened. So why were the bow doors open is perhaps the question. Well, the person who was supposed to close them uh, wasn't uh, at his station. Um, so quite clearly he's to blame um, and he was asleep. So that, you know, dreadful. Interestingly, he had a very good track record. He was a very experienced um, person, never done this before. And when you delve a, a bit, little bit deeper, you find out the reason he was asleep was because he was knackered. And the reason he was so fatigued was because the company was losing money and they'd increased the frequency of sailings to try to earn some more money, but they hadn't increased the uh, uh, sort of crew uh, time off. So they're having to work harder. Normally you would get some rest while the ship is being loaded and unloaded. So he was, he had worked an extreme number of hours, like some of us may remember when we were junior doctors and, um, and he was just fatigued and he didn't wake up as he normally would when the ship sailed. And then you add in the fact that the alarm, uh, the, the experienced captains had been requesting that, um, uh, an alarm was fitted to tell them if the bow doors were open and that had been kind of ignored by the um, management. Uh, and so there was no effective alarm to tell them or light to tell them that the bow doors were open. Um, and so all of this 
effectively goes back to the boardroom. Next, please. Um, oh, we can come on to this. Uh, I'll come back to the boardroom in a moment. But so fatigue was the fundamental cause, excessive working time, poorly designed shift patterns. I really fear for our junior doctors. I don't think the current pattern of, of working is, is healthy because we take a biological clock, we turn it completely upside down for three or four days. And just by the time that they've got their biological clock adjusted to doing nights, we turn them back up the other way. Uh, I don't know whether this is sensible because I think if you do it frequently enough, this causes real fatigue, which is more than just tiredness. Importantly, fatigue leads to a decline in mental, in mental and physical performance. Um, uh, uh, and it's particularly uh, concerning for workers who are doing um, machine-paced, complex or monotonous tasks. Well, I don't think being a doctor is um, is machine-paced necessarily, uh, but certainly complicated, although writing a, rewriting a complicated drug chart in the middle of the night could be uh, seen as machine-paced. But uh, I do worry about the fatigue we're inducing with this pattern of working. Um, we used to get tired when I was a junior doctor because you do a day and a night and a day, but everybody knows you can, you can, you can get away with a night of no sleep, but I think it doesn't lead to fatigue in the same way unless you're doing it too often. Next, please. So this is an example of a latent failure of the Herald of Free Enterprise. There was a board decision uh, that was made without a good understanding of how it was going to affect the operational context and therefore the frontline delivery. So whenever we're making decisions that might affect, affect how the frontline work, it's worthwhile just thinking through the potential consequences. And um, if they had sat down and thought through what might be the consequences of increasing our frequency of sailing, they may have worked out that fatigue would have been one of them and that could have been a risk. Next, please. Uh, this is, you can't read all this detail, but this is the Canadian Occupational Health Society. But the one bit I wanted to say was that um, staying awake for 24 hours straight, this is top left, um, affects the human body almost exactly like the blood alcohol level of 0.1%, which exceeds the Canada's legal limit for driving. Um, so that's interesting, isn't it? You know, once you've been out of bed all night, um, you, you're probably acting as if you're over the limit. And we just need to be aware of that. Um, I don't know how much work you have to do in primary care these days after you might have been up all night. Um, I've got a friend who's a GP in um, Devon, but he works in Plymouth. And I always worry about him because he every every uh, week he'll do a night shift. So he'll drive to Plymouth, which is about 25 miles, do an overnight shift and then drive home again. And I always worry about him driving home after that level of um, disruption, but uh, there we go. And he's no spring chicken anymore. He's, he's even older than me. Um, next, please. So um, states of mind can also uh, increase our risk. And I just give you this simple mnemonic halt. Um, because if we're hungry, or if we're angry, or if we're late, or if we're tired, that is more likely, that state of mind is more, it puts us at risk of making a mistake. 
So if you think about it, if you think, am I hungry? Am I angry? Am I late? Am I tired? Why am I feeling like this? Uh, uh, you know, it may have been impossible to avoid those things. You know, the real world happens to us, but we just need to have it in our minds. And if we're hungry, hungry, angry, late or tired, we are more at risk of making a mistake. And it might be time to just pause for a few minutes to recover from whatever those causes might be. Next, please. Um, oh, we've talked about this. That's appeared twice. Apologies. Next, please. Yeah, so um, this is really about uh, the, the barriers. We talked about the, Sw the Swiss cheese. So often upstream culture is important. Are we, are we organized or are we chaotic in the way that we do business? So is your surgery uh, a very organized, well-run sort of place, or is it a bit chaotic? Or is it a mixture of both? Or does it depend? Um, do we allow lapses in concentration? Do we allow the interruptions that I mentioned earlier? Because that's when we, the last chain of, uh, the last line of defense is, uh, is us. That's when we make slips, lapses, and uh, errors. So just worthy of thinking about the chain uh, of events as happened in the Herald of Free Enterprise. Next, please. So, uh, obviously I'm in Portsmouth and uh, greetings to you from a lovely sunny day here on the Solent. And many of you will have visited Henry VIII's favorite warship, the Mary Rose, in, the, in her wonderful new museums. Now that in the top 50 museums in the world, uh, I am told. It's a lovely, lovely new building, really spectacular. So, um, normally if we were seeing each other in person, I would put the question to you, why did the Mary Rose sink? And we'd have a little bit of a, a debate about that. Um, if anybody wants to unmute themselves just to uh, give me the answer, or at least let me know anybody's listening, actually, that'd be nice. Um, anybody know why the Mary Rose sank? Hubris. <laughs> <laughs> I've not heard that one before, but it's nice to know someone's out there. Any, any historians, any naval his overloading? Yes, thank you, Fliss. Um, that's certainly one of the, the reasons. Any, any other reasons? Good, Jane's listening, brilliant. Thank you for, for um, letting me know you're out there. Um, they, the port, they had the portholes open too close. Portholes open, yeah. Yeah, portholes open. Why do they have those open? They're, they're, well, they were in battle with the French. Those pesky French were um, coming to try to invade. Yet again. Any other theories? It was overmanned, wasn't it? it was yeah, overmanning. Heavy guns. Yeah, that's right. So we'll never really know why she sank, but she was engaged in a stressful circumstance, i.e. battle. She was the favourite ship of Henry VIII, and because she was a very she she served for over thirty years at uh, this point. So she was a very reliable ship. And because she was so favoured, an extra gun deck had been added. Can you, can, you can see at the stern there's a new, another deck that's been added. And on that deck had been placed the newest, grandest, heaviest state-of-the-art cannons. And also because they were uh, engaged in battle, they had lots of uh, mercenaries on board to try to fire guns, at, uh, not, not cannons, but just um, take pot shots at the French and they were on the same top deck uh, and so yes it doesn't take a genius to see 
that this was a rather top-heavy ship. The gun ports were open, which may or may not have been relevant because she heeled in a, a gust of wind. The, the captain's or admiral's reputed last words were, knaves, I cannot rule. Knaves, I cannot rule. And that's been translated to mean that he couldn't make his orders understood because the mercenaries were from Spain. So there was a communication issue. So just when they should have been letting go of the sails to allow the ship to, to come upright, um, he couldn't let his, his um, orders were not understood. Uh, and so the whole thing uh, capsized. So a bit of Swiss cheese there, lots of things going on and, and sink she did in front of Henry. Um, so that was uh, 500 years ago, and that, that couldn't possibly happen again, could it, in the modern era. That would be impossible not to have learned those fundamental lessons of stability. So next slide, please. And the next slide, please. And the next slide, please. So um, some of you may remember waking up to this on the 3rd of January 2015. This is one of those very um, functional looking unattractive car carriers that ply their trade um, between the continent. Well, I don't know if they're still plying their trade. I hope they're still plying their trade a bit anyway, between the continent and us carrying cars uh, to and fro. And then this is the Hergesaka. Uh, and as you see, she has just about capsized and she was saved by the Bramble Bank, which is a sandbank in the middle of the Solent. Uh, otherwise she would have sunk and blocked the entrance to Southampton for a long, long time. And this would have been a national disaster. Because a lot of our um, uh, imports, uh, including oil, comes through this particular port. And so this would have been a real significant uh, problem for us. So um, the Hergesarka's role is to sail between Hamburg, Bremerhaven, Southampton, Singapore. She just does that loop over and over again. So she's picking up cars and dropping off cars and other things, but mostly cars, trucks. Um, but because it was the end of the financial year, they reversed the route. So normally they would load a ship from the bottom to, to stop it being top heavy. And they would load first in Hamburg, then Bremerhaven. And Southampton was always on the top three decks because it was the last to load before going to Singapore. But they reversed the order, but funny old thing, they didn't reverse the um, loading. So the bottom of the ship was empty and they put all the Southampton stuff on the top three decks as usual. Um, and uh, by chance, chance always plays a lot of, um, uh, has a lot of significance when it comes to breaching the defences in error. There was a particularly heavy convoy or um, consignment of JCBs. And as you know, they, they're very, very heavy. Um, so they were actually put on the very top deck. Um, so the, uh, to make it worse, the ship's representative, who was a rather uh, tall, aggressive, um, I think South African, had flown in to oversee the loading of the ship and had been had quite a sort of Barney with the quiet, diminutive um, Indian loadmaster who worked on board the ship and was very experienced and in fact overruled him and put even extra cargo on because he, th he thought he'd be pleasing his masters because the more they could get off the deck, 
uh, the more they could get off the key in Southampton, the more um, less tax the company would have to pay. So uh, you, you get a little flavor of um, the precondition here to, to an error going on. Um, once the ship sails, uh, the, the master of the ship, the captain says, this ship feels tender. Um, tender is the um, maritime word for unstable. So with all his years of experience, the captain could just tell the ship feels unstable. Um, uh, get me the loading um, computer printout. So when you load a ship, um, everything should be put into the computer, which calculates something called the metacentric height, which is the stability point of the ship. But because it, in order to save time, it's become common practice to fill in all that data after the ship has sailed. So that's a bit of a problem. So the um, loading master says, oh, I'm not quite uh, ready yet, boss. Um, now, those of you who know the Solent know that at the bottom of the Southampton water, you need to turn right at Calshot Spit to avoid the Bramble Bank or your run aground. And as soon as they uh, uh, turn right, and you can't just stop these things, they once they're underway, they, they take a long time to stop. So they turn right and the ship starts to roll and you realise they've got a serious issue. Um, and then you have to turn left to avoid the Isle of Wight. And uh, so they turned um, left and that's where the big roll happened. And then thankfully, uh, just under inertia, the, the ship glided in a, in a sort of curve onto Bramble Bank, which stopped it sinking. And at the time, I remember the press release in the evening was wonderful. It was our heroic captain saves ship by grounding it on a sandbank, which was utter nonsense. And it was just sheer luck that the Bramble Bank was there. Um, next, please. So the Marine Accident Investigation Board um, uh, writes really beautiful reports. They're non-judgmental. And that's the important bit. They purely seek to expose the facts in a non-judgmental way, because that's how you're going to learn to avoid the Mary Rose and now the Hergesaka sagas in the future. It's absolutely non-judgmental and, and written in a beautiful way. Um, and that's discovered several themes that are all important human factors. And you may or may not recognize some of these as being um, a concern in medicine. Next, please. So the first thing was the culture. Uh, I love this phrase, the normalization of deviance. Normalization of deviance. What a great phrase. Uh, what that means is that they had normalized breaking the rules. So they had a process. You're supposed to fill in the computer. It had become widespread to break those rules in, in the maritime industry, not just in the case of this ship. Our normalization of deviance I think a good example was MRSA and C. diff. We'd forgotten the basic rules of hand hygiene. Um, so uh, again, if we were all sat in a, a room together, and I wish we were, um, I would open the floor now and say, can you think of any examples in your world where you not break the rules, but you bypass established procedures for the sake of saving some time or, or getting to the destination a bit more easily. Um, it's always difficult on Zoom and people are very reluctant to speak, but I'll just pause there a moment for you to think. Can I think of any examples where we actually 
are, are bending the rules or breaking the rules that might put, it, put us at risk. And if anybody wants to volunteer one, please, please do unmute. My, my feeling is that we operate routinely at about 30% over capacity in general practice now. And so I think we, we really have normalized working at a pace which none of us would set out to work at. Um, that's my that's my opinion. <laughs> yeah, I think that is a really powerful observation, and uh, I'm sure that many of your colleagues will feel the same. If you if so, if the Marine Accident Investigation Board came and interviewed you all, and once you'd had an error, and say, well, you know, did you not think that working thirty percent over was dangerous in some way? Um, there will be little um, when you pause in the cold light of day, a uh, little defence against that. Um, in some way, in the outpatient clinic in hospitals, we used to do much more of that. And I think we've largely abolished it by sticking to templates. Um, I, I do apologise that messages come up, but for some reason, because I'm doing this on an iPad, I can't see the messages. They sort of flash up and disappear again. Allow me, um, so, allow me, if I may, just to... Yeah. Thank you. So uh, Benjamin makes the point, not checking the patient name on an ECG before interpreting. Well, there's a bit of cardiology there for you. And yeah. Uh, yeah. we're lacking resources in, in um, uh, office travel flow, unable to fit in everybody. Uh, we are managing risk and under-investigating people who are low risk. And every few years we get bitten on the bum. Yeah. Yes. So uh, in order to cope, just like the Herald of Free Enterprise and just like to save time, we're, we're cutting corners. Those are really interesting examples. Um, and you, you, uh, you may think of more examples. Um, really sorry, I can't see these points coming up. Someone else has, oh, here we go, Zemma. It's routine to be interrupted by the nurses doing surgery, not their fault, they're time pressured as well. Yeah, exactly. Um, uh, so it's a way, so I can't give you the answers to that, but you could think about, um, Having, having times when you can be interrupted or ways of interrupting that perhaps less distracting. Also um, if I can just make, uh, I've just thought of it, the, this, the information overload that we as GPs have all the time, that there is constant mm. messages flashing up on the screen marked, yeah. early, which will actually turn out that somebody's moving off moving rooms within the building and and yeah. my train of thought is completely disrupted by that and I think that's yeah. and also the um the the number of times that uh, you get alerts and um red triangles in the clinical system that say are you, are you sure you want to prescribe this are you sure you want to prescribe this and most of the time it's not really an important thing sometimes it will be but I think there's that click fatigue where you've You've shut down an alarm so many times that perhaps when one really is important, it's going to be easy to miss. Absolutely. We all do that, don't we? We just we, we, we become conditioned to shutting these up, these distractions. So, uh, yeah, this is this comes back now to system design. This comes back to the, the adding the extra deck to the Mary Rose, doesn't it? How can we make those more meaningful? Uh, um, uh, maybe it's a colour thing. Maybe, you know, the, the most severe warnings need to be in red, whereas the more minor I don't know I, I don't work in your world but the point is in, unless we sit down and start having these discussions as clinicians with our teams we will still be vulnerable did anybody else want to make a comment there 
we have a we have a comment um one of our colleagues is saying i always ask staff to wait for me to finish whatever task i'm doing before i move on so that scripts are finished first unless it's a true emergency so that's so that's, an, that's a good comment isn't it and you know if you can do that without causing offense or maybe completely disrupting the flow that's that's got to be sensible because scripts i think we're all vulnerable to aren't we mm. yes absolutely uh, well, I can see this one. Sarah, uh, we are holding greater, yeah, greater than ever risks due to COVID. C couldn't agree more. And Karen, receptionists and nurses are always happy to. I hope you can see these. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, I think what, I, what I'd encourage you to do is to just take away some of this perhaps and have a discussion. You can't do the whole of human factors in the coffee break, but you could start talking about where are we most at risk. We've got a, a hand up, Bern, Bernard. But, but, yes, hand. Bernard, what do you want to ask? Bernard, are you there? Is that a, a legacy hand? May need to unmute. Well, Bernard, uh, okay. Med yeah, Comet Medicine's riddled with compromises, pressure system problems. It only works because, uh, yeah, I couldn't agree more, but the trouble is, are we owning too much risk? Have we got to a stage where we're owning too much risk? If we're going to be a high reliability organization, we start, we've got to start to be honest about this. And my personal view is because we cope, 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 the management or the people who resources don't get that there's an issue until the, till the train crashes, till the aeroplane crashes. And they say, well, you didn't tell us. Well, actually, we probably did tell you. Um, so we've, we've been very good at absorbing that as medical professionals. And uh, I, personally, I think there should be much more of a dialogue about this. I'm gonna carry on. Um, so the other things that, the other human factors that were present with the Hergesaka was the authority gradient. So this is a, I don't know whether this is a danger in primary care or not, but certainly is in, in medicine, isn't it? Where there's a big difference in the seniority of the most senior person and the most junior person. So the classic example is the medical student um, in Wales who said, you're about to take out the wrong kidney. And he was um, not only told to shut up, but ridiculed by their surgeon. Uh, you know, what do you know, medical students? And of course, he went on, the surgeon went on and took out the wrong kidney. So now the patient had no kidneys because the other one was diseased and failing. Um, it's a lovely example of a big authority gradient. So safe cultures go out of their way to lower the authority gradient, to use first name terms, to say, if you see me making a mistake or running into trouble or you're concerned about something that I am doing, please tell me please keep me safe. So that, so teamwork keeps people safe. Communication, we heard about the Mary Rose um, and there was also the, the, the communications issue here. Boy oh boy is communication important in healthcare. Every time there's a handover of patient care, there's a risk to communication. One of the biggest risks I think I see that we generate for you is writing chapter and verse, war and peace in some of our letters. I'm horrified by the letters that I see from some specialties, you know, three pages of A4 without a single paragraph. My God, they're terrible. 
Uh, and I do tell them, but they won't learn, but they do need to uh, work out that actually most people haven't got all the time to, to write their beautifully constructed three three page letters. I, I don't know whether you, 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 you feel that at all. Um, there's Andrew. Social services even <laughs> God, I didn't think anything could be worse. Yeah. Uh, now, so this is this is not this is this is a, a pay, it's not just about use of resources. Who's got the time to write War and Peace? Let's face it, um, but it's about patient safety because there will be things that are missed. Um, Churchill used to have a lovely uh, phrase when he was a very junior officer. Uh, I'm sorry the report is so long, sir. I didn't have time to make it shorter. I'm sorry the report is so long, sir. I didn't have time to make it shorter. So in other words, it takes a bit of mental effort to condense your thoughts. Uh, and it's actually just laziness to write war and peace. Um, Lisa's saying she gives a whole session to medical students to discuss. Oh, good. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. So uh, don't be apologetic. It's, a, it's not just a, it's a, it's a patient safety issue. Checklists. So on the uh, on the Hergesaka, they had of course checked. Uh, you, there were two hundred and eleven boxes, and when you on eleven pages, and when you uh, look at them, they're all ticked beautifully, and quite clearly they haven't been ticked real time. They've all been just ticked in retrospect. So checklists are great as long as you use them properly and that they contain the minimum possible amount of information, and uh, and that we actually use them properly. Fliss is saying, well, why, why don't you say, Fliss, what you're saying? I'll just have to unmute her. Oh, right. Okay. Sorry. I've made it difficult. Just two moments. Coming, Fliss. And I've, I've, I can unmute Bernard as well if he wants to come back with his points as well. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Um, so here's Fliss first. I'm not sure if Fliss was actually no. tried to talk earlier this morning or didn't. Yeah. Both. Bernard's got his hand yeah. up, Richard. But, but, um, well, I guess, Fliss, was that you yes. then? Yeah. Yes, I'm yeah. on. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. Great, nice make your point. Nice, yeah, lovely. Yeah, nice to see you, Richard. I, I investigate Thank NHS you. complaints and it's a rich source of learning for me. Um, I've just done a complaint where the community mental health nurse did a lovely assessment, wrote a letter to the patient and said, I'm going to write to your GP to ask them to refer you to Department X, whatever it was. And the GP didn't do, didn't do that because the GP read that letter is, oh, they're going to write to me. Actually, they just got the copy of the patient letter and were waiting for the CMHT to, to write. Yeah. Stupid, yeah. stupid thing um, that led to delay in treatment and a very unhappy patient and a GP who was really stitched up. Traumatised, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, so that's a workflow thing, isn't it? And um, yeah. And, and not many layers, not many layers in the defence. Yeah, and quite often there'll be something buried. That, that actually was a three pages of A4. Yeah, yeah. And the instruction to refer onwards, if the GP had read it as this is my letter, was yeah. buried in paragraph 28. Yeah. Yeah, so I think we need to have an open dialogue amongst all health professionals. If you're going to ask someone to do something, it must be quite clear at the end of the letter or at the beginning, actions for GP or actions for hospital. You can't bury it in, in War and Peace. Bernard, are you unmuted?
no. Okay, I'll carry on. Can you hear me? Oh, yes, yes. Hello, oh, Billy. Yeah, technology. Uh, yeah, thanks so much. Are you still... I want to sort of do a sort of a comment at the end about sort of clinical reasoning. Uh, so I don't know whether it's the right time to do it or whether I should do it at the end. Uh, probably at the end. Um, yeah. If that's all right, I'll try to re we finish at one, don't we? So I must remember to leave a, a couple of minutes for that. But thank you. Yes. Okay. Um, so checklists, uh, great if we use them properly. Cognition actually could have been perfect time for Bernard to do his bit about clinical uh, reasoning, um, but uh, yeah, there was a there was a, a, a failure of, of thought at head office and on the key side about hang on, isn't it? Why why are we putting all these cars on the top floor when the bottom two are empty? Well, that's what we always do in Southampton. Um, they'd reversed the order, and the, the ship was going to go Southampton then Bremerhaven, then Hamburg. Design, so uh, both the computer system allowing them almost to, be, to, to fail by not populating it as loaded, but also the design of the ship um, allowing this to happen. Um, and then, so, you know, is this bad luck or is this Swiss cheese? Next, please. So uh, earlier on, uh, someone made the point about we're always working at it feels like 30% over. Um, so this is time pressure. Um, so this is from the Royal College of Physicians, uh, bottom right, say six to eight new patients in a clinic or 12 follow-up per clinic. You know, I used to work in an environment where you'd see double that and you'd be racing, racing, racing. And of course you're going to make a mistake. I'm sure the same you feel in, in primary care. So therefore you should build space for unexpected work. Can you quantify how much unexpected work is going to happen to you in a day? If so, build in the space. Design. Design is important. Design in the space. Separate predictable from unpredictable work. Um, I was always struck by how GPs could be rung at any stage during surgery to say, uh, Mrs. So-and-so is having chest pain or, or some other emergency. and Can you drop everything? I think probably that has been addressed and you probably do separate your predictable from your unpredictable work. Is that true now, broadly speaking? Um, as, as a GP who has worked in a number of different practices recently, I think it does tend to vary, although my experience is usually that there'll be some sort of duty system where that person will have a degree of protection from the routine to be able to absorb. Yeah. Although Chris says not not for the poor old duty doctor who's um, yeah and uh, and sometimes of course you know the duty doctor will come into work and one of the other GPs will be off sick and suddenly all of that work has to go somewhere so yeah actually building in allow the redundancy to absorb that sort of thing I think is is an investment that would be well made by a lot of practices I'm not sure how many practices <clears throat> actually do it. Can you leave it? Mark makes the point um, that's usual for seniors or managers to disapprove by saying uh, of us saying things are unsafe. Man up. Absolutely right. And that was exactly how it was in aviation where, uh, when we used to kill people. So um, uh, the uh, Tenerife accident, the captain was a very, very senior. The first officer was very, very junior. The captain was also on all of the posters for KLM. He was the poster boy. 
and that added to his sort of um, godlike status. Uh, and he heard uh, they were in fog, they'd been diverted to Tenerife. There were loads of jumbo jets diverted in fog. It's not really built as an airport for um, jumbo jets. Uh, the fog was lifting and the, he was about to taxi and the tower said, not clear to taxi. Junior officer relayed that to the captain. who said, I heard clear to taxi. Junior officer said, no, we're not clear to taxi. Senior captain says, are you, are you, are you uh, arguing with me, boy? I heard clear to taxi. It's all recorded on the voice recorder. And he taxied into the path of uh, an aeroplane that was about to take off, both fully laden with fuel. And, and you saw the picture and that was the disaster. So that's, that's a, the reason they pay attention to that is because so many people are killed at once. The reason we pay less attention in healthcare is that people perish one by one. And unless we uh, take a stance with our seniors and, and say, this is, this is not safe, we need to have, a, we need to talk about this in patient safety terms, we're never going to change uh, the system. Going back to time pressure, allow adequate, and, and this is the critical bit, undisturbed administrative time. So try to be undisturbed. I like the arrive early, leave on time, easy to say, more hard to do. I like it. I, I, love, I love feeling that when I do it. It's really good. Avoid distraction. Don't overbook your clinics. Uh, your goodwill your goodwill, don't allow your goodwill to overwhelm you. So that's our fundamental problem, isn't it, as doctors? We are fundamentally wanting to help people or colleagues, and we allow our goodwill to overwhelm us and therefore make us vulnerable. Don't allow never-ending ward rounds. My God, you can't concentrate on a ward round that goes on for hours and hours and hours. Um, I'm sure it's the same in, in the surgery. And don't overload your lists. Uh, again, easy to say, until you start to sit down and have serious patient safety discussions around this, um, it's more difficult to operationalize. Next, please. Yeah, so I mentioned our um, uh, normalization of deviance. This was um, infectious diseases reports. You can see them rising up. Do you remember that terrible time in the 2000s when pa patients were terrified about coming into hospital because they were going to die of MRSA? Um, and it took ministerial action, embarrassingly, for us to get our house in order. And um, MRSA and C. diff now are rarities, uh, I'm pleased to say. Next, please. So maybe this is one of the biggest problems we need to address. Medication errors. These are our jumbo jets. 237 million medication errors in the UK per year, causing 712 deaths. And that's probably... Almost certainly, that'll be an underestimate. Um, you know, that's that's two. That's more than two jumbo jets. How do we manage to create so many medication errors? Um, this is hospitals and primary care. I'm sure you, if you pause for a moment, you can think of all the potential ways in which we allow such errors um, to occur. I suppose a more fundamental question here is: Is it right? and proper to have a busy GP sitting, signing script after script after script, or clicking, I guess you do nowadays, do you? Should, should you know, is that rightfully your work or should that be the work of somebody else? 
depends how good the system is. I, you know, went from a practice where I trusted my partners to be very diligent on the medication review and their reviewing of the patients, and I felt happy to click off their work. In other places where I've locumed, I felt very nervous. Yeah. But I don't know the culture that's behind what's being produced. That, I, yeah. think it, I think it can be a formality or it could actually be a safety net which needs to be robust. It depends how you run your practice. Yeah. That's a good, that's a really good comment. And, and that comes down to the, the other fundamentals of human factors, teamwork and trust. Um, so in the world of aviation, no one, no one dreams of um, not trusting the fact that the airplane has been serviced to the very highest of standards. And so accidents thankfully are rare. We've just had one, haven't we? A near miss um, in America where a fan blade broke. Um, thankfully, those type of manufacturing areas are extremely rare. Um, but nevertheless, the pilot will still walk around the airplane having a good look at it before he takes off because every so often you will spot something that has, has been missed. Um, was there another comment there from Fliss? It's about DMARDs. They won't prescribe them until they're stabilised in one practice. So identifying the risky things and having processes in place for them, I think would be a yeah. That. And again, unless we take a bit of time and think about these things, we'll never design safer systems. But because we're working at such full speed or over over capacity, we never take the time to step back and think: where are the risks? How can we do it more safely? Um, next slide, please. So I'm going to finish on this one. Uh, but there is a big movement called Civility Saves Lives. This was published in the Harvard Business Review. Interesting. When someone's rude to you, 80% um, of the recipients lose time worrying about the rudeness. So it's quite Someone said before, the use of language is really important, isn't it? Well, also the way you use the language can be important. 38% reduce the quality of their work. 48% reduce their time at work. 25% take it out on service users. So we become less effective clinicians delivering poorer care. But it's not just the person who received the rudeness. It was also the witnesses, interestingly. So the witnesses get disturbed by a 20% decrease in performance. 50% decrease in willingness to help others uh, and 75% service users less enthusiasm for the organization. So being civil, being polite, being well behaved towards each other, be it clinicians or uh, ancillary staff, uh, is really important and you know hospitals used to be a hotbed of incivility. Uh, uh, our current medical director John Knighton is very hot on this and we're desperately trying to uh, stamp out incivility, not just because it's a bad thing, but because it also is a patient safety uh, risk. So Civility uh, Saves Lives is a, a sort of ongoing campaign and uh, worthy of thinking about in your practice environments. Look, there's loads more that we could talk about, but I'm conscious that Bernard wanted to talk about cognition, which is again, one of the human factors. Um, particularly confirmation bias, um, believing what we want to believe, believing, seeing what we want to see. Bernard, are you unmuted still? Yes, I think. Can you hear me, Richard? Yes, I can. Yeah. yeah th thanks so much for your important um, 
um, slides and discussion. I mean, I'm working on clinical errors uh, for the last 10, 11 years, wrote in the BMJ that it needs to be part and parcel of teaching, which mm. I think isn't as yet. And even mistakes is something which is amazing. I mean, the third cause of death are medical mistakes after cardiovascular disease and cancer in America. Yeah. So uh, that's quite, you know, daunting. So uh, looking forward, there are sort of certain things one could read, which I found quite interesting. And it's interesting, it comes all from Harvard, because obviously they're probably aware of uh, medical mistakes and the impact on patients. So there's an interesting article in the BMJ, which is a review article, called Error in Clinical Reasoning Causes and Remedial Strategies. That might be quite, uh, quite, quite useful to read. And an amazing book from a chap called Jerome, uh, Jerome Grubman, who had a chair, a medical chair in Harvard, uh, and it used to be a New York Times bestseller, so you can read it very easily, uh, how doctors think. So you always have to think, how do you actually think and do your reading processes? I mean, that might be quite useful. If somebody wants to read how doctors think, they're sort of Catherine Montgomery, but that's very difficult to read. So one could stick with how doctors think from Jeremy. So all the checklist, Adol, you know, Atul Gabanda is a chap, uh, a surgeon who developed checklists. He's sort of quite an interesting chap to read. So it's quite interesting to be aware uh, and always sort of think about Socrates, you know, that uh, we know that we don't know and we, you know, we, we are just humans. So you always have to reflect. And unfortunately the new technology uh, with, uh, with the telephone consultation has got problems because there's one, for example, anchoring where you do decision too quick and then you actually don't, don't think about it and then it's gone and the mistake can be done. So there's certain things which you're aware in terms of mistakes, you can sort of do something about it. And that's just what else I just want to comment there in addition. And yeah, the other well, I'm sure, um, Bernard, if, you put, if you'd be kind enough to put those titles in the chat or maybe they could be circulated by joe that would be great so thank you very much for those comments i'm conscious that we are at our time um so i think i'll stop there i hope it's been of some interest i'd close with just saying look this is an lmc event and um uh, the we have now the equivalent of the marine accident investigation board called the um healthcare accident investigation board and they're supposed to look at overarching um, issues. So if the feeling amongst general practitioners who uh, are on the LMC that you're all working over 30%, I think an independent body such as the Healthcare um, Accident Investigation Board would be well placed to take an independent view and say whether this is safe or unsafe. So I'll shut up there and thank you very much for the um, invitation, Julia.